O true benefactor, dye my garment in the saffron color of the name of the Lord. This is the Bhajan Satya Guru Merbana on page 170. O dear one, if you want to dye your body, dye it in the saffron color of Nam. If the Lord dyes you in this color, such a color cannot be seen anywhere else. O dear one, the beloved is with those who have dyed their garments. Nanak prays for the dust of such souls. O true benefactor, dye my garment in the saffron color of the name of the Lord. Bhajan of Guru Arjan Dev on page 170. Sachiya Guru Merpana Mera Ranga De Manjiti Chola Sachiya Guru Merpana Mera Ranga De Manjiti Chola Kaya Rangana Jeti Apyare Kaya Rangana Jeti Apyare Paye Nama Manjita Mera Ranga De Manjiti Chola Sachiya Guru Merbana Mera ranga de manjiti chola Sachiya guru merbana Mera ranga de manjiti chola Rangana vala je range sahib Rangana je range sahib Esa rangana dita Mera ranga de majiti chola Sachiya guru merbana Mera ranga de majiti chola Sachiya guru merbana de majiti chola Chole jin ke rat de pyare Chole jin ke rat de pyare Kanta tina ke pasa Mera ranga de majiti chola Sachiya guru merbana Mera ranga de majiti chola Sachiya guru merbana Mera ranga de majiti chola Durati na ki je mile Durati na ki je mile Kaho nanaka ki arandasa Mera ranga de majiti chola Sachiya guru merbana Mera ranga de majiti chola Sachiya guru merbana Mera ranga de majiti chola 
Oh, true benefactor, dye my garment in the saffron color of the name of the Lord. Our next budget is on page 267. Oh, beloved Kripal Guru, my love with you is very ancient. I am lying at your door. I am standing with my hands stretched out. The eyes are thirsty. Make me have your darshan. Shower grace, O Lord. Take me across. O friend of the miserable ones, the ocean of compassion, how do you forget me? Showering grace, you liberated the saints. O Satguru, you have liberated even the sinners. You ate the contaminated fruits of Shivri. You embraced all those who came into your refuge. You have erased everyone's difficulties. You have known everyone's pain. O Satguru, I am in your refuge. You are an ocean and I am your drop. You are my mother and father and brother. I am a beggar, you are the giver. O Ajayb, this is the tale of lives. This is the story of birth after birth. O beloved Kripal Guru, my love with you is very ancient. Vajan of Sanchi on page 267. <laughs> Guru to Hey, Kirapala Guru, Pya 
Yeah. 
beloved Kripal Guru, my love with you is very ancient. Okay, there are several announcements. The next World Religions class will be on May 15th. Video night this coming Friday at Chris and Jeanette's. And you should plan on this happening every other week. And there will be prasad passed out at the close of satsang today. I want to begin today by reading section from a talk of Master Kripal, which is actually something I've read a number of times before, and I'm sure that many of you will recognize it. It is one of my favorite of all the things that he said. It's worth repeating many times, I guess. This was part of the talk that he gave on January 25th, 1964, in Washington, D.C., just a few days before he left for India, at the end of that tour. And that was, as I've often said, up to that point, that was the pivotal ten days of my life. What we got, and it wasn't just me, I mean, what everybody got from Master in those ten days was life-changing. And uh, this was the celebration of his birthday, a week early, and I've often read this in connection with that too. He was, it was the, in the friends meeting house in Washington, and instead of being down in the basement where the satsang was usually held, he was up in the main meeting place of the friends meeting house, and he was sitting on a dais and speaking so carefully, so peacefully, I would say. I had a absolutely overwhelming migraine headache that day. Pain was incredible. Because of that, I had great difficulty paying attention to what he was saying, although my memory is of him sitting there is very clear and uh, my looking at him as much as I could, but because of the pain, I actually left the hall several times in the course of the talk and came back. Once I went to a nearby drugstore and got some medicine for the migraine, which didn't help at all, and then I went back in. And it's a very curious memory because as as of other times when I recall being with Kripal and also Sanji too, Pain and illness is mixed up with incredible happiness and peace and love. And they're all, uh, it's like part of the same thing. Anyway, this is part of what Master said on that day. By no means the whole talk, but I do want to read this section. Godhood is the birthright of every human being. Fortunately, we have that birthright. It is the grace of God. And the grace of God has further descended in that we have some desire, some yearning for God. It is to achieve him, to find him, that we have cared to join any school of thought or religion. It is possible through love alone to become God, I would say. 
the lover and the beloved both become one. Christ said, I and my Father are one. And St. Paul said, it is I, not now I, but it is Christ that lives in me. This is what is meant by the word gurumuk. Master is God in man, and a lover of the master becomes a gurumuk. He becomes the guru, a God-man in man. This is the ultimate feat of love, and this is the easiest way. I remember a story that has just struck me. Lord Rama went into exile for 14 years. He went to the wilderness where many other yogis were living. There was one lady there of a very low caste. She heard that Lord Rama was coming into exile into the wilderness. And what did she do? She thought Rama will be coming and he may be barefooted so that the thorns might prick his feet. So she simply cleared the way of all thorns. And then she thought in the heart of her heart, when he comes, what shall I offer him? In the wilderness there is no food to eat, but there are berries everywhere. She began to pluck berries and taste them. Those that were sweet she put in her pocket. So she kept all those tasted berries with her. Each of the yogis who was living there thought that perhaps he was the greatest of the yogis and that Lord Rama would be coming to his cottage. Mind that this I-hood, I know better, I am better than all these others, is the last weakness that leaves a man, even the so-called masters. But where did Rama go? When he went to the wilderness, he met the lady who had collected the berries. And what did he do? She offered him those berries that were tasted, and he ate them. Love knows no law. Love is above all. Of course, the significance of this is not just that the berries were presumably, I mean, we would consider it unhygienic, but this lady was a bilni, a very low caste, basically an untouchable. And Rama was a kshatriya, of relatively high caste, and it was absolutely unthinkable for someone in a lower caste to taste something that would then be eaten by someone of a higher caste. When masters came, by the way, low caste masters like Kabir, Ravidas, and so forth, when they gave prashad, they also challenged this particular Hindu concept so that Rama's accepting. This is what Sanchi refers to that in the bhajan that we just sang. You ate the contaminated berries of Shivri. This is Shivri that Master is talking about here. And Rama ate that. Now when, when I've often told this too, that when I and a number of others were in India in 1969 with Master Kripal, it was the time of the Ramlila. And the Ramlila in northern India, I'm not sure about southern India, but in northern India, the Ramlila is a tremendous celebratory time. And people, uh, everyone uh, gets into it. And there are enactments of the Ramayana all over. 
Uh, in Delhi, there were probably 15 or 20 different theatrical performances, some of them uh, outdoors. One of them was in the Ramlila grounds, named for that particular purpose, with 100,000 people watching, others in theaters and so forth. And Master sent us all to a particular theater where the version was playing that he liked, and the Ramlila, of course, is based on Tulsidas's version of the Ramayana, which is Tulsidas was a master of the highest order. He taught the Shabad Yoga, and his version of the Ramayana, uh, which follows the same storyline as the Sanskrit version, is uh, also brings out the spiritual implications and expresses them very clearly. Not that he adds anything, but that uh, he makes it very plain what what is really being talked about. And it is Tulsidas's version that is the vernacular version of North India, because it's in Hindi, whereas the original is in Sanskrit. So we went to see this, and it was Master wanted us to go, and he told us he sent us basically. And I was lucky enough to be sitting next to the princess Devendra Beer Kaur Narendra, known as Cuckoo, whose English was excellent. And she translated everything that was being sung on the stage. To, and those of us who were sitting closest to her could hear her. And so we were able to follow everything. And this scene is enacted. And it's very interesting. Shivari comes up and presents the berries to Rama. He he loves them. He he he's very gracious to her. He smiles at her. He takes the berries, and he puts them in his mouth. And his brother Lakshman, who is an Orthodox Hindu, is absolutely horrified. He's standing there. We see he pulls out his hand. No, no, no. You can't do that. But Rama just smiles and continues to eat the berries and smiles graciously on Shivri. So it's a huge thing. I mean, it, it is very subversive when it comes to Hindu caste law. But Master is emphasizing throughout here that this is a question of love because Shivri loved Rama and Rama loved Shivri. The whole question of caste is non-existent. All right, love knows no law. Love is above all. The yogis living there had been doing penances for hundreds of years because this is, of course, the Silver Age, the uh, Treta Yuga, when people live much longer than they do now. Then he went to them and they came up to him and asked, will you kindly grace our cottage? There was a pond of water where they lived that was full of small insects. We would say it was polluted. Of course, there was no other source of water. And they asked Lord Rama if he would just clean the pond of all dirt and insects by his grace by putting his feet into the water. Because it was generally held that a genuine holy man could indeed clear pollution this way. He said, no, I think you are the greatest of the yogis. Why don't you put in your feet? For they must be better able to clear up the pond. They did, and the water remained the same. Then they forced him, kindly put your feet into the water and all insects will go. Your feet. He said, all right, it's up to you. 
He also put his feet into the pond, but the insects were still there. Lord Rama had to demonstrate the greatness of love. True love does not know any show, mind that. He said, I think it would be best if you called that Bilni, that is a female member of the Beel caste, whom you despise, is implied, and let her put her feet into the water. She was, of course, had a double whammy on her. She was A, a woman, and B, a beel. And she came and put her feet into the water, and the pond was cleared. These are instances to show that love is a great miracle. God is love. Through love only you become one with God. You can become one with him whom you love. As you think, so you become. But we have not seen God. How can we love? We can only love one whom we have seen, who is at the same level at which we are working. The Mohammedan scriptures tell us each man must have some beloved. What sort of beloved? Not one that leaves you but is ever with you. One who does not leave you in this life and in the life hereafter. And who can he be? It is the God in him. Christ gave an example to show this. So long as the branches are embedded in the fruit-growing tree, they give fruit. But when they are cut off, they cannot give fruit. Then he said, I am the vine, ye are the branches. So long as you remain embedded in me, you will bear forth ample fruit. Do you see? This is what is meant by love. Hafiz, a great saint, tells us, O oh God, people call me Hafiz, but I am no longer Hafiz. I am he who lives in me. So, for human beings, God becomes human and has love for his beings. In that man who has become one with God, God becomes man. God in man and man in God. This is the word I have given in this message too. And who was he? My master. I saw him. He was man and God. To love master is to love God. The God in him not the Son of Man. Mind that there is no sadhana greater than love. All outer performances, rites and rituals, and the saying of prayers are only meant for love. If you have developed love, everything is there. There is no higher law than love, and there is no goal beyond love. Because love is God and God is love. In this way, God and love are identical. For the one who has divine love has reached God. He is one with him. That is why I said here that what the masters taught in their lives is a religion above all religions. They gave out that very love. No amount of intellect can fathom God. No amount of austerity can enable you to attain God. Only when one loves him 
and loses oneself in him, can one find him? It is only by the feet of love, F-E-A-T, of love, that you can lose yourself when the two become one. And there are no other means. There is no other way back to God except through love. And I now want to read, with your permission, a talk, a section, again, not the whole thing, of a talk that I gave on return from India on January 11th, 1987. And this connects very definitely with what we were just reading. I start, I say, this was quite a trip. It's hard when you've been touched by grace to explain it or even to talk about it. Sometimes it's easier than other times. For me, the past few trips have been largely meditation times, and the main things that happened happened in the meditation hall. This time it was a different kind of a thing although I certainly meditated a lot and loved it. It was a question of the grace of God and the healing that comes when the grace of God is brought to bear on any individual. I went in a very battered state. I mentioned before I left that this was a very difficult year for me. I, too, can be very wrong about things. I can be mistaken. I can get into bad frames of mind, and I can get discouraged and even depressed. These things happen to me as much as anyone. And when I arrived, I was met from the first night right through until the final morning with the forgiveness and mercy and grace and love of God. It was moving around in the human body of Sanchi, but it wasn't confined to that body. It was everywhere. As usual, I found the underground room experience to be the lens through which the whole trip becomes meaningful in retrospect. Not, of course, while it's going on. Each moment is meaningful while it's going on. This time, more than ever, when I went down the stairs to the underground room, it was very clear to me that I was walking down the stairs into my own self. The underground room has seemed all along to be a metaphor for the descent into the abyss of what we are. And at the centermost part of it, there we find that which we have been yearning for and longing for. Kent mentioned the bench in that room on which Sanchi meditated in his talk a month ago. We don't have the bow tree that the Buddha sat under. Jesus meditated in the desert, but we don't have any tangible reminder of that. Yet there is that bench, which is the equivalent in our day of those things. And it is our great grace, I would say, to be able to go down into the place where it is located and partake of what happened there. Somehow, Sanchi makes that possible. I don't know exactly how it works, but when we go down into that room after having done our best, God knows, compared to what is required, it may be pathetic, but from our point of view, everyone was doing their best. 
after ten days of doing our best, we are allowed to participate in that descent. I come away shaking with awe at what has been given to me, and I still feel that way when I think of what Sanchi has given to me in the course of the last few days. Sanchi gave a series of satsangs, which if we call them extraordinary would be understating the reality by a thousand miles. I feel a very strong connection to that series. I loved them in a way that is hard to explain. They were different from his usual satsangs. He was, in effect, writing the first eight chapters of what will probably be a 24-chapter book. It's a commentary on the Asa Divars, which is a section of the Guru Granth Sahib, mostly written by Guru Nanak. And that book, of course, which, by the way, uh, had 21 chapters, I was off by three, uh, is the book that was called In the Palace of Love. And I said, I found the artistic quality of the satsangs extremely satisfying. The care and the consciousness with which the talks were given was very moving to me. I don't say that the other satsangs which he has given in the last ten years have not been that way. That's not the point at all. But somehow these satsangs moved me in a very special way. And I think that the book that's being written will be up to now, Sanchi's definitive book, and probably the best book on the path that will be available. And of course, I did feel that way, right up, as it says, up to now. And I felt that way about this book right up until The Rescue was published. And now I would have to say that I consider that Sanchi's definitive book. But anyway, he continued to outdo himself as long as he was in the body. It's a remarkable combination of very basic essential ideas and very profound applications of those ideas. Some very surprising things were said. The thing that affected me most, which I have not stopped thinking about since the night he said it, was when he defined the greatest sin of all. I don't know what other people were thinking, but I was thinking, well, we can make a good guess as to what the greatest sin of all is. We know the most dangerous of the five passions are lust and anger, and we know about criticizing others. Surely it's going to fall into one of those categories. But it didn't. It was a total surprise to me. And he said it in the context of repeating something he had said many years ago to somebody at 77RB. But I never knew it then. He said, the greatest sin of all is to be afraid. I thought about it and thought about it. The self-evident truth of it took root and illuminated large areas of my own experience on the path which had remained shrouded. The greatest sin of all is to be afraid. I saw, sure, why don't we obey? We don't obey because we're afraid. Why don't we live up to our own highest truths? Because we're afraid. We're afraid of what other people might have to say. We're afraid of the consequences. We're afraid in some cases of the equivalent of jumping off the cliff 
which the master certainly demands in meditation and sometimes in outer life too. Anyway, ever since he said that, I have run across a continual reinforcement of that statement in other sources which I would just like to share. They are very brief. That night, the night Sanchi had said this, I was reading at the ashram from the writings of Thomas Merton, who is a Catholic mystic of this century. He says, It takes more courage than we imagine to be perfectly simple with other men. Our frankness is often spoiled by a hidden barbarity born of fear. False sincerity has much to say because it is afraid. True candor can afford to be silent. It does not need to face an anticipated attack. Anything it may have to defend can be defended with perfect simplicity. Fear is perhaps the greatest enemy of candor. How many men fear to follow their conscience because they would rather conform to the opinion of other men than to the truth they know in their hearts? How can I be sincere if I am constantly changing my mind to conform with the shadow of what I think others expect of me? Others have no right to demand that I be anything else than what I ought to be in the sight of God. No greater thing could possibly be asked of someone than this. This one just expectation, which I am bound to fulfill, is precisely the one they usually do not expect me to fulfill. They want me to be what I am in their sight, that is, an extension of themselves. They do not realize that if I am fully myself, my life will become the completion and the fulfillment of their own, but that if I merely live as their shadow, I will serve only to remind them of their own unfulfillment. And then a few days later in the same book by the same writer, at the root of all war is fear, not so much the fear men have of one another as the fear they have of everything. It is not merely that they do not trust one another. They do not even trust themselves. If they are not sure when someone else may turn around and kill them, they are still less sure when they may turn around and kill themselves. They cannot trust anything because they have ceased to believe in God. It is not only our hatred of others that is dangerous, but also and above all, our hatred of ourselves, particularly that hatred of ourselves that is too deep and too powerful to be consciously faced. For it is this that makes us see our own evil in others and unable to see it in ourselves. And then after returning home, I found this in the writings of Dorothy Day, another great Catholic mystic of this century whose life has meant a great deal to me, speaking of people who are doing their best. They learn not only to love with compassion, but to overcome fear, that dangerous emotion that precipitates violence. They may go on feeling fear, but they have grown the means and faith to overcome it. 
And I know from my own self, when I have obeyed the Master and done what he wanted me to, it was despite my fear. And when I have disobeyed him and been unworthy and done less than he wanted me to, it was because of my fear. The celebrated instance that I have talked about so often when Master Kripal told me to weed out ten from the people being initiated when he was here in 1972 fits exactly into the category that Merton was talking about. And for the benefit of anyone who who may not have heard that story, although God knows I have told it so many times that probably people out on the street have heard it. In 1972, when Master Kripal was at Satpani Ashram, I had set it up so that people were being screened carefully before initiation. And Master had told me to, and I had I ran a class. I had a couple of met a couple of times in the five days with the people who wanted to be initiated, and we went over requirements and what was expected and so forth. And they all filled out their forms and like that. And there were twenty five of them as it happened. And so at the, with that number, I arranged that the people, most of the people could do the meditation in the satsang hall as usual, although Master would be in the big house giving the initiation to people in the old satsang room or the, what is now and was then the living room uh, in the big house. And that was all set. I went to bed the night before the initiation, all content and peaceful and like that. I was extremely tired that week, and this was, of course, the end of the week. And somebody shook me awake at some early hour and said, you better get over to the big house right away because they are tons of people are being accepted for initiation. So I went over to the big house, and Mr. Kana was there, and Mr. Serene was there, and people were lined up and were being told they could have the initiation. and There were already twice as many as had been there the night before. And I realized that, you know, uh, they weren't being screened. And I knew some of them, and I knew they, they were not had not been on the diet, and I had very deep distrust of their motives, and so forth and so on. And I also knew that there were now way too many for the big house, and what on earth was going to happen to the people that were just wanted to meditate. So I panicked, and I ran down to Master's house, and I went in and I told him what was going on. And he looked at me very directly and with a twinkle in his eye. He said, uh, weed out ten. And I said, what? He said, weed out ten. Then we'll then be all right. I, I mean, and I didn't say anything, but in my mind, I thought, you want me to go up there and tell ten people they can't be initiated? With, that Mr. Kana and Mr. Serene have accepted, and I, I, I just couldn't believe it. I mean, I, st- I was totally stunned. I stood there, we, we stood there, there was nobody else around, just him and me, and we stared at each other, it seemed like five or ten minutes, and I was, I was, absolutely paralyzed mentally and finally I started to laugh I mean I it just the idea of my doing that struck me as so 
incongruous, so incredibly. I mean, I was just not in a position to challenge Mr. Kana, and like that, I just, I couldn't even conceive of doing it. And I just started to laugh. It seemed so funny to me. And Master was looking at me very closely, and when I started to laugh, he started to laugh. And then we stood there, both of us, laughing away for another five or ten minutes, it seemed like. And then we stopped laughing, and everything was calm. He said, all right, we can have the initiation in the hall. It doesn't matter if the people don't have a meditation this morning. They, they, they'll be all right. Don't worry about it. So that's what happened. Some 50, more than 50 people were initiated that morning. And Master Gay, and you can say, I mean, I don't know, you know, they were destined to get it. They got it. I knew, I mean, some of them never practiced the path for even a day as far as, as far as I could tell. One of them, I, a friend of mine told me that he had been at a party and some, one of the people that were initiated that day had gotten drunk at the party and, yelled out the five names to everybody in the room. And what can be said? I mean, it was, if anyone was at fault, it was me, because I had my orders. And not that I would have known who to weed out, but presumably Master would have provided the grace with which to do that. Anyway, it was a perfect example of what Thomas Merton has been talking about, the kind of fear that came up. It totally overrode the fact that Master gave me orders to do that. And it was indeed a, a triumph of fear over obedience. I was afraid of what other people would say, that fear was so enormous that it did not even occur to me to trust the Master and to jump off the cliff. It was totally beyond my capacity to do that. Notice, though, that Master, it's like, he gives us tests like that and challenges. If we fail them, it's not as though we're dead. You know, it's like, okay, you failed that one. We'll try something else. I mean, the Master never gives up on us. And Master was watching me. I mean, I had the option to obey. But the fact that I didn't obey did not finish me. As far as uh, it was not that Master then had no further interest in me and uh, no longer wanted to, you know, care about me. It was not like that at all. It's just that it did not happen that way. That was one possibility. And it's always like that. We can fail, you know. Failure is how we learn. But Master doesn't stop loving us just because we fail. Not in the least. Anyway, it was totally beyond my capacity to do that. And I saw, and I still see, I hope I never stop seeing, how fear works in those ways and how we allow it to whittle ourselves down and become less than we ought to be. In connection with that, in the same talk, he talked about the passions. The passions are dangerous, but they're sinkholes, they're traps. They're not sins exactly. Sinning is what we do in response to them. But the passions have been saddled onto us by virtue of our birth in a fallen universe, and it is our job to learn how to avoid them. We have to develop the capacity to dance, as Bethany aptly and wonderfully said. 
we have to dance between them. Uh, Bethany Stevenson, now Bethany A. Canner, who had been to India the month before, had also given a talk and talked about dancing our way through life as a way to avoid things like that. If we think of them as, a, as pits of quicksand in the midst of a swamp, the swamp being the Bhav Sagar, the ocean of this world, the swamp of this world, if we think of them as being pits like that with a little narrow path wending its way through them, then if we are not afraid, you see, we can dance our way around those pitfalls without falling in. Once we become afraid, the dance is over and we trip and plop right into the middle of one of the passions. And it seems to me that's why he did not single out one of the passions as the greatest sin. And as for criticism and judgment of others, which he has elsewhere cited as the single most important obstacle to growing closer to God, the fact is that that is a result of fear. Merton explained that very well. We judge and criticize others because our fear prevents us from seeing in ourselves that which we know to be evil, but we see it in others only too easily. We project it out, judge them, and then we create the trap that stands in our way and prevents us from having that which we want so very much to have. That is why in the Bible it says, perfect love casteth out fear. The complete and perfect trust and love in God. When we see the Master, we realize, yes, the grace of God is working here. We see it working through his body. We see it working through his ashram. We see it working through the practices that he enjoins upon us. We see it happening through the restraints that he places upon us. This is how the grace of God comes to us. So let's trust it. I have said before, trust is the word translated faith in most English versions of the Bible. The Greek verb means in its root to trust, pistuane, unfortunately translated as believe in most cases, which if you think about it, puts an entirely different theological complexion on what the New Testament is talking about. If we trust that grace, then that will cast out fear. This is what love really amounts to. In connection with this, there were a number of dear ones from South Africa present in this trip. This was, of course, before the election of Nelson Mandela and the elimination of the apartheid regime. And one of them asked Sanchi what the attitude of the initiates, most of whom, but not all, are considered non-white by the government there, should be in light of what is happening in South Africa. And I was told that Sanchi responded, the attitude of the initiates anywhere and everywhere should be to love everyone and to have hatred for no one. I think that is the most radical possible answer anyone could give because it cuts at the root of everything that we lump into the whole world of political agitation. Even getting worked up about these things involves putting someone else down. Us, them. Whenever there is an us-them situation in our minds, 
the initiate is failing in what his main duty is, and that is to love. It doesn't preclude doing things from other points of view. Sanchi made it very clear in the UPI interview when he was here in 1984 that revolutions and political or social changes have to do with what people want and that Sant-Mat teaches in this regard neither to be afraid nor to make others afraid. And this was in response to a question of a reporter who asked him basically what uh, the attitude of Sant-Mat was toward things like revolutions. And Sanchi said basically that whatever people want, uh, they will have. And that if they want to change the government, they can change the government. It's up to them. And then she said, so the principle of Sant-Mat is to go along with things like that. And he said, the principle of Sant-Mat is this. We are not afraid of anybody, and we don't make anybody afraid of us. We don't intimidate anyone, and we don't allow anyone to intimidate us. And I, I have that, by the way, tacked up on the door of my bedroom, and I try to look at it every morning. We are not afraid of anybody, and we don't make anybody afraid of us. We don't intimidate anybody, and we don't allow anyone to intimidate us. But when that is going on, whatever is happening, no matter whatever revolution or change or whatever, the job of the initiate is to love everyone and hate no one. And if we think of the implications of that, especially connected with what he said about fear, we see how radical in the real sense that is. The word radical comes from the Latin and means root, Radish comes from the same word, by the way, because it's a root vegetable. So radical means to go to the root and change things. And if that's the initiate's main duty, then if that were extended out and applied to everyone, you see, then we would have what Master Kripal always referred to as the spiritual revolution. It would indeed happen. And he also told one magnificent story. He told a lot of stories of great interest, but one in particular, similar to a story that Master Kripal told a few times about a woman who worshipped an idol. She was a genuine devotee and she worshipped the god that she thought was working through that idol with great sincerity. She used to serve meals to the idol. In the Hindu rite of puja, the images are often worshipped by serving them meals. The meal is served, and after a few minutes it is taken away and eaten by the priest, the idea being that the god has taken the essence of it. Some of the masters have made fun of this particular belief. They have pointed out how impolite it is to take the meal away from the idol just a few minutes after you put it there. This particular woman was not satisfied with that. She wanted the idol, the god, to actually eat the meal itself. So she begged and prayed, Oh God, please eat my food. I want very much to feed you. And God heard her prayer. The real God heard her prayer, Sanchi said. She was praying to the idol. The prayer was real, and perhaps it was even fearless. In any case, the real God heard it and answered it. He knocked on her door in the form of an old beggar and asked her for some food. She said she didn't have any. 
He begged her more for some food, and she said, All I have I am giving to the image. You can't have it. And she drove him away. And then she went back and wondered why God didn't come to eat her food. So he said that had she known that God resides in each and every human being rather than in idols, she would not have thought twice. It is such a paradigm of the way that we habitually relate to the world. We set up the framework within which God is to be found. If it doesn't happen the way we expect, then we can't see that it is happening some other way. And I conclude, well, thank God for him. What else can be said? That God still continues to smile on us and on this world, despite the wars and fighting and conflicts and sheer unadulterated garbage that the world is full of. Despite all that, we wend our way via the time tube, the 747, over there and back. And God smiles on us and holds us in his arms and kisses us with the kiss of grace. That's not a small thing. That's what makes life possible. So thank God that it doesn't stop, that it keeps on happening, and it's available to us. I hope that we never forget Whatever grace is involved in our having it, the only possible appropriate response to that is, to the extent that we can, to share that grace with others. The only duty of an initiate everywhere, at every place, and at all times is to love everyone and to hate no one. And the greatest sin of all is to be afraid. If we can remember those things, then I think that we can be what the Master wants us to be. And people, I would say also that I've said this many times before, but it is of the utmost importance that we be aware that whatever the Master has given us, we still have. When I say, you know, it doesn't stop, Of course, a few years later, by some point of view, it did stop. The group stopped going to Rajasthan. For a while, there were city programs only. Then there was SKA, and many of us remember both the city programs and the SKA of the 90s, and of course, the masters still continued to come here. But remember the point that we... If we only look for grace in the way we expect it to come, then we will only see it in the terms of what we expect. We can well miss out wherever it is. And whatever the Master has given us, as Kripal said in the talk that we were reading from, you know, what kind of beloved do we have? The kind that never leaves us, not in this world, not in the next And it is our limitation of vision, of perception, that makes us think the Master has left. You know, he has not gone anywhere. The Master is with us as much as he ever has been. And if we are not initiated, but if we are searching for God, if we want to find God, which is the the criterion that Master laid down that 
once the desire to meet God arises in someone's heart, it cannot be stamped out, then it also applies. The grace of God is extended and available to everyone who is seeking for him. That's the law. And he is everywhere. You know, there is no place where he is not. He is specifically and most decidedly within our hearts, but not only within our hearts. When we see him outside, we become more aware of him within. When we see him within, we become more aware of him outside. I want to close with, this is a quote from the Gospel of Thomas, the extremely interesting esoteric book which did not make it into the New Testament, but which may well be more authentic than the books that did, although there is a difference of scholarly opinion on that. Jesus said, It is I who am the light which is above them all. It is I who am the all. From me did the all come forth, and unto me did the all extend. Split a piece of wood, and I am there. Lift up the stone, and you will find me there. And really, that is the truth. The Master is everywhere, within us and without, present in our dearest friend and in our bitterest enemy. He is always and in everywhere at all times. And if we are able to turn our attention in his direction, if we can get out of the way, as Master Kripal once said to Judith when she asked him about some difficulty she was having in meditation, he said, well, look here, I want to come in and you are standing in the door. How can I come in if you won't let me? You get out of the way and then I'll be able to come in. Really, that's what's required. You know, we do get in the way. Our fears, again, the question of fear, which are the strongest thing, but fears lead to desires. That which we are afraid of happening leads to what we want to happen. We become attached to that. And where is room for the Master in all that? He is here. You know, there is no place where he is not. Because we have such a beloved who never leaves us. He does not leave. Not in this world, not in the next. We have the Master's word for it. So, each thing, you know, each remembrance that we have of his smile, of his laughter, of his rebuke, that is our property. It cannot be taken away. We have it. Just as when the, you know, the money lender, the loan shark, who was saved by the master who hadn't done one good deed in his life, just as he was allowed to go be with him for a couple of minutes because the one thing that he had done that was, he could carry with him for his benefit was the hour he had spent with the master. That hour that the master gave him was his, and he carried it with him. And everything that the master has given us, you know, whatever time we spent in his darshan, whatever gifts of grace he gave us, whatever prashad he has given us and continues to give us, whatever, whatever we experience in meditation, whatever 
breakthrough we have achieved, whatever insight we have gotten, whatever, oh yeah, I, I see now what he meant, whatever feeling of love for him that we have, all of that is our property. And it is said, you know, that the one glimpse, one glance from the Master is enough for any number of lifetimes. It's true. Because we are dealing with someone who is outside of time, who is functioning from the level and the point of view of eternity. And there is no way that he can be defeated by anything that happens in time or the world of time. Time is Kao. And the Master is is beyond and above that. All right, remember that the duty of the initiate is to always love everyone at all times and in all places and to have hatred for no one. And the greatest sin of all is to be afraid. God bless us. So if there's a tape, we can hear it. सोच को ना जिसने केस गरीब आत्मा को बड़ा लंबा पैना मार के दुनियावी तौर पे दे करके राजस्थान में जाके तब भी आत्मा उठाए आई बॉडी इन फ्रंट ऑफ सुप्रीम फादर कृपा पुजारो सो फार इवन इन फिजिकल बॉडी पुजारो सो फार टू राजस्थान एंड कूल डाउन द हीटेड आउट हार्ट ऑफ दिस पुअर सो he who has come to give does not have any problems the problems are with the receiver whatever our wishes were whatever our receptivity was according to our wishes and according to our receptivity according to the vessel which we had made for receiving his grace we got things from him param pada prabhat evi pyarma aamsa samaj kende sige ke anedi taakat ne sajakhe ne pakad lave jab tak sajakha khud hi awaaz maar ke person to catch hold of the finger of the person who can see until the person who can see calls that blind person and he himself makes his makes the blind person catch hold of his finger the blind one cannot get to the person who can see we the jivas are the blind ones god almighty who is the form of the shabad is the one who can see everyone everything we do not know anything we do not know how to get to the shabad until he himself calls us towards him we cannot go to him he knows that who has the yearning and whatever wishes we have he always fulfills our wishes kumhan parambita kabalne sada vitai vita doni athi da latamaria 
ਉਹ ਅਜਿਹੀ ਦਿਆਲ ਕਰਦਾ ਜੀਵਨ ਤੇ ਅਜਿਹੀ ਆਪਣੀ ਦਿਆਲ ਲਟਾਉਂਦਾ ਹੈ ਸਵਾਲ ਲੈਣ ਵਾਲੇ ਦਾ ਹੁੰਦਾ ਹੈ ਦ ਗ੍ਰੇਟ ਸੀ ਫਾਦਰ ਦੇ ਪਾਸ ਗੇ ਵਿਚ ਬੋਥ ਹਿਸ ਹੈਂਡਸ ਹੀ ਆਲਵੇਸ ਗੇਵ ਐਂਡ ਗੇ and even now he is showering his limitless grace upon everyone he is still giving his grace to all the people the question is of the receivers suraj asman pe chale hunda hai unnu dekhde ni te unna de karm hai suraj da khod ni hunda hai us mahan param pita kripal ne kone kone vich duniya de toka ditta jinna de uche bhag si the sun rises very high in the sky but the owls do not see him but there is nothing wrong in the sun it is not the fault of the sun it is the fault of the owls supreme father kripal went to every corner of the world and he gave out this message but those who did not accept his message it was their fault ਗੁਰੂ ਚਰਨਾਂ ਦੀ ਜੋ ਕਿ ਹਰ ਇੱਕ ਮਹਾਤਮਾ ਨੇ ਮੈਂ ਮਾਰਾਈ ਹੈ ਪਿਆਰ ਨਾਲ ਸਾਨੂੰ ਸਮਝਾ ਰਹੇ ਹੈ ਸੁਆਮੀ ਜੀ ਮਹਾਰਾਜ ਇਨ ਦਿਸ ਪ੍ਰੈਜੈਂਟਡ ਟੂ ਯੂ ਇਨ ਦਿਸ ਸੇਮ ਸੁਆਮੀ ਜੀ ਮਹਾਰਾਜ ਟਾਕਸ ਅਬਾਊਟ ਦੀ ਹੋਲੀ ਫੀਟ ਆਫ ਦਾ ਮਾਸਟਰ ਆਲ ਦਾ ਮਾਸਟਰਸ ਹੈਵ ਸੈਂਗ ਟੂ ਪ੍ਰੈਜੈਂਟ ਪ੍ਰੇਜ਼ਸ ਆਫ ਦੀ ਹੋਲੀ ਫੀਟ ਆਫ ਦਾ ਮਾਸਟਰ ਸੋ ਇਨ ਦਿਸ ਸੇਮ ਸੁਆਮੀ ਜੀ ਮਹਾਰਾਜ ਦਰਿੰਗਲੀ ਐਕਸਪਲੇਨਸ ਟੂ ਅਸ ਅਬਾਊਟ ਦੀ ਹੋਲੀ ਫੀਟ ਆਫ ਦਾ ਮਾਸਟਰ ਅਸੀਂ ਬਾਤ ਲੈ ਚਰਨਾਂ ਨੂੰ ਮਹਾਤਮਾ ਦਾ ਨਮਸਕਾਰ ਕਰਦੇ ਹਾਂ ਕਿਉਂਕਿ ਅਗਰ ਬਾਹਰ ਸਾਨੂੰ ਚਰਨ ਨਾ ਮਿਲਦੇ ਅੰਦਰ ਸੁਣਾ ਪਰਮਿਕਾਰੀ ਨਸਲੇ ਵੀ ਆਲਸੋ ਬਾਉਡ ਔਨ ਟੂ ਦੀ ਆਊਟਰਪੀ ਆਫ ਦਾ ਮਾਸਟਰ ਬਿਕੋਜ਼ ਇਫ ਹੀ ਹੈਡ ਨਾਟ ਗੋਟ ਟੂ ਦੀ ਆਊਟਰਪੀ ਆਫ ਦਾ ਮਾਸਟਰ ਵੀ ਵੁਡ ਹੈਵ ਨੈਵਰ ਬੀਨ ਏਬਲ ਟੂ ਗੋ ਵਿਦ ਐਂਡ ਰਿਸਪੈਕਟ ਦੀ ਇਨਰਪੀ ਆਫ ਦਾ ਮਾਸਟਰ ਬਾਹਰ ਵਿਚਾਰਨਾ ਦੀ ਬੜੀ ਮਹਿਮਾ ਗਾਈ ਹੈ ਸੁਆਮੀ ਜੀ ਮਹਾਰਾਜ ਕਹਿੰਦੇ ਸਾਧ ਚਰਨ ਅਰ ਸਤਿ ਉਤਮ ਭੂਮ ਪਵਿੱਤਰ ਯਹਾਂ ਪਗਤਰਤੇ ਦੀ ਆਊਟਰਪੀ ਆਫ ਦਾ ਮਾਸਟਰ ਇਜ਼ ਆਲਸੋ ਪ੍ਰੇਜ਼ ਵਰਥੀ ਇਟਸ ਆਲਸੋ ਵੈਰੀ ਇੰਪੋਰਟੈਂਟ ਸੁਆਮੀ ਜੀ ਮਹਾਰਾਜ ਸੇਡ ਦੈਟ ਦੀ ਹੋਲੀ ਫੀਟ ਆਫ ਦਾ ਮਾਸਟਰ ਇਜ਼ much more worth than visiting the 68 places of pilgrimage the place where the master puts his feet that becomes worth worshiping hindustan ke andar ganga nadi 1500 mil lambi dai rahi hai hindustan ke aam log ode vich naam hi mukti samjhde hain ki assi mukt ho gaye hain lekin guru nanak dev ji maharaj apni bani jigar karte hain ਕਿ ਉਹ ਵੀ ਸਾਧਨਾ ਦੇ ਚਰਨਾਂ ਦੀ ਧੂੜ ਨੂੰ ਨੋਚਦੀ ਹੈ ਕਿ ਮੇਰੇ ਵਿੱਚ ਪਾਪੀ ਲੋਕ ਨੰਦੇ ਹੈ ਆਪ ਦੀ ਮਹਿਰਤਾ ਕਰ ਜਾਂਦੇ ਹੈ ਅਗਰ ਸਾਧਨਾ ਦੇ ਚਰਨਾਂ ਦੀ ਧੂੜ ਪੈ ਜੇ ਤਾਂ ਮੈਂ ਵੀ ਪਵਿੱਤਰ ਹੋ ਜਾਵਾਂ ਇਨ ਇੰਡੀਆ ਯੂ ਕੈਨ ਜਸਟ ਫਲੋ ਫਾਰ ਅਬਾਊਟ 1500 ਮਾਈਲਸ ਐਂਡ ਦ ਹਿੰਦੂ ਪੀਪਲ ਬਿਲੀਵ ਦੈਟ ਬਾਈ ਬੇਜ਼ਿੰਗ ਇਨ ਦੈਟ ਹੋਲੀ ਰਿਵਰ ਗੈਂਜਸ ਦੇ ਵਿਲ ਬੀ ਏਬਲ ਟੂ ਰਿਮੂਵ ਦ ਡਰਟ ਆਫ ਦੈਟ ਸੈਂਸ and that is why they consider river ganges as the holy river and they go there for the pilgrimages but guru nanak sahib <coughs> talks about river ganges in his writing he says that even the holy waters yearn for the holy dust of the feet of the master because the rivers the holy waters say that all the sinners come and they bathe in us and they leave all their sins in us and we yearn for the holy feet the dust of the holy feet of the master so that we may also become without the sins jada mahatma ne dassi hoy jitte de mutabik assi simran karde hain failure khayalon akhan de piche laye aunde hain surya chandra mastare par karke guru de charna tak pahunch jande hain phir sada sacha pyaar sacha ishq paida ho janda hai main ruh de simran 
<coughs> according to the instructions of the master, and when we come to the eye center, according to the advices of the master, and uh, when we have crossed the stars, moon, suns, and when we come to the form of the master, the inner form of the master, then the real love and the affection for the master is developed within us. Many people who have reached the inner form of the master, but because they have not yet developed their concentration, those who lack any concentration, sometimes they complain that sometimes they see the form of the master and the other times the form is not that, the form comes and goes. Dear ones, it is not like that. The form of the master is within you all the times. It is your mind. It is because of the lack of your concentration that you think that, or it seems to you that the form of the master comes and goes. The reality is that the master is always present there. It is because of the lack of concentration and because of the fluctuation of the mind that you do not see him constantly over there. It is like uh, the train which is moving. If we are sitting in the train which is moving and if we look outside, it seems to us as if all the uh, trees which are outside, they seem to be running, they seem to be moving, but the reality is exactly opposite to that. It is not the trees which are moving, it is the train in which we are sitting which is moving. The trees are permanent that the trees are where they are. It is only because of the moving train that we feel that the trees are moving. The same is our condition. Unless we have developed the complete concentration at the eye center, the form of the master comes and goes. Mahima Sadhguru Shabad Bharma Sar Vachan Pannai Kyasi Guru Charan Basi Ab Man Me Swamiji Maharaj says that when the inner feet of the Master gets manifested, when the inner feet of the Master got manifested within me, now whether I am asleep or awake, I am always bowing down at the feet of the Master and bowing down at the feet of the Master is my japa, my tapa and all the forms of devotion are included in my bowing down to the feet of the Master. Oh, 
Oh, dear one, don't be proud of color and beauty. Death is standing on your head. This is the bhajan, Ranga Rupa Dhammananakarye, on page 127. Name and fame will exist for a few days. In a moment, the minarets of youth will be demolished. Be afraid of death's nature. You came to meditate on Nam, but Maya trapped you. You forgot the true all-owner in your heart. By meditating on Nam, we get liberation from this world. Tell what is the limit of breaths in the body. Remember the Lord. Don't forget him. Folding the hands, request this of him. Meet me, O beautiful Kripal. Make us have your darshan. Meeting quench the thirst of a jabe. Let us do the Simran of the Satguru. O dear one, don't be proud of color and beauty. Death is standing on your head. Bhajan of Sanchi on page 127. <laughs> 
Vesire ute mote kari sadena, vesire ute mote kari sadena, rangeru pedamanena karie, rangeru pedamanena karie, vesire ute mote kari sadena, vesire ute mote kari sadena. Maneva di aitore, tina lei renge, pure te giovani vale, pala vice tenge. Maneva di aitore, tina lei renge, pure te giovani vale, Vishadenge, Vesireutemotekari <laughs> 
Vesire ute mote cari sajena, Vesire ute mote cari sajena. Milo kir palesona, Tare shadika deo, Mila ke ajaibati, Yasenu buja deo. Milo kir palesona, Dare shadika deo, Mila ke ajaibati, Yasenu buja deo. Sate guru da simrane karie, Sate guru da simrane karie, Vesire ute mote kari sajna, Vesire ute mote kari sajna, Ranga rupa da manana karie, Ranga rupa da manana karie, Vesire ute mote kari sajna, Vesire ute mote kari sajna. Oh, dear one, don't be proud of color and beauty. Death is standing on your head. May God bless us all.